You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Good evening and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Darnell Moore. I'm the author of No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. And I'm super excited to be in conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie was a former dean, a freshman at Stanford University, and the best-selling author of How to Raise an Adult in Real American. Her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is an essential guide for young people on how to manage the difficulties and advantages of adult life. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like to ask Julie a question, which we hope that you do, please submit those in the chat or comment section. And we'll try to get through as many questions as we can, possibly towards the end of the program. So, Julie, welcome. Welcome. Donnell, thank you so much for being in conversation with me around my new book. I'm honored to get to be with you tonight. Of course, grateful to the Commonwealth Club and Inforum and um, Marcus Bookstore for supporting this event. Um, really excited to be here. And on this day in particular. Yes. Speaking of this day in particular, I want to start by reading a brief passage from your turn. Um, and it's, for those of you who have the book, it's on page 372, I'm urging you to get it. But you write, as I was writing this book, we could very plainly see individualism eclipsing the needs of the collective whole in America. Hundreds of thousands of people were dying from a virus that some other societies had managed to contain. And the economy was shrinking because people couldn't work and people were losing their jobs and getting evicted from their homes. And on top of all of that, unarmed Black people were being maimed and killed by law enforcement, and protesters were being assaulted by law enforcement for exercising their First Amendment rights. And on top of that, the climate was clapping back. And on top of that, we couldn't even count on the simple gift of a stranger smiling at us in a grocery store because their face was shrouded by a mask. So all in all, I found it challenging to try to project confidence in these pages about your ability to make things better. But nobody's here on this planet but us. A scary, shitty time that challenges our faith in humans and in a society is precisely the time to dig deep and figure out how to make a massive positive shift. I want to begin there because I thought it was appropriate given the times, particularly given where we are today. We're still living in the, in, through a pandemic. Um, just a few hours ago, a three-count guilty verdict was read in the case of Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. And I know that your turn comes to us after you spent three years crafting it. It's clear and poignant and in so many places hilarious, but it seems to have arrived in the world at the right time. So first, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? And then secondly, how do you think your book is speaking to these times? How I'm feeling in this moment at 6 p.m. Pacific time on the day when Derek Chauvin was found guilty on three counts um, for having murdered, we can actually legally say that now, for having murdered George Floyd. Um, I didn't expect this. Of course, I hoped for it, but I have learned not to expect that justice will prevail. And so I was overcome. I cried in my house, watching the television. And then Darnell, I, I, my son, all caps texted me, he's 21. 
guilty on th all three counts. I said, come downstairs. He came downstairs and we sat together on the couch and held hands and watched and chatted a bit and so on. I checked social media and then my body felt weary, just weary. I curled into the couch. It felt my, my body was a limp rag. And the only way I can explain it is I think I have been on high alert for so long to have a few moments, 15 minutes, half an hour, three hours a day, however long it may turn out to be before I'm on heightened alert again, to be off heightened alert. My body could just sort of collapse. It was to put a burden down. It was like my body was saying, oh my goodness, thank you. We're going to set this down for a moment. And by this, I mean the constant concern and fear we have as Black people about what is happening to Black people. And of course, there are so many others in our community who are also subject to wanton violence and um, are treated with, a, with no dignity. And so it's not just us, but today, certainly it has been about us. And I just felt my body exhale. And um, tell me the second question, something about the book in this moment. Let me make sure I get it right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, and, and I'm right there with you. I experienced that today, too. Um, you know, unexpectedly tears falling out my eyes. I don't know why it was unexpected, partly because after you cry so much, sometimes you don't know if the tears can come. But when writing books, we never know when and how our books are going to enter. The world is going to enter into what's happening in the context of that moment. And your book is out within the context of this very particular moment. Um, and yet and still, it's speaking in a lot of ways to this to this particular moment. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, of course, I did not choose this date. I felt tremendous pressure to complete a book that I had just found it impossible to write when I finally found my way in, finally found a voice that was vulnerable and compassionate as opposed to authoritative. Uh, I was then given the thumbs up and the publishing uh, folks said, okay, we're setting a pub date and it will be this. And then the pandemic happened. And so I was under um, a lot of kind but insistent pressure to finish this thing in months when I didn't, um, you know, I, I, like everybody, was struggling. And so here it is. It is done. It is born of a pandemic. It is comes out of these times. The advice in the pages weaves the fact of a pandemic and systemic racialized violence through the, through the stories that uh, just as a way to say, this is what humans deal with. And I think that's probably the point. Humans have gone through a lot of shit over the course of our existence. In just the most recent 100 years, we have had horrific events that have challenged and reshaped us. And I think what we know is humans survive, humans endure. We all come from people who lived long enough to give us life and that should give us strength. And moments of challenge, whether it's a Holocaust and a World War II or Jim Crow or 9-11 um, or 
a Great Depression or a Great Recession, we have been through stuff. And the beauty of challenge, the beauty of struggle, the beauty of disaster and tragedy, the 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 growth that is possible because that growth is strength. That growth is clarity around what matters. We have all been deprived of that essential thing, which is human touch, human connection, human engagement. We have been deprived of that nourishment, that nectar that we need to continually drink in order to be well. And it has given us clarity that when I am allowed back out and can once again congregate, I will choose where and with whom I go more deliberately. I know now with greater clarity what matters and what doesn't to me. So the upside, the silver lining, the America into which this book is born is one where we're all clearer that life is finite, precious, and we must be in charge of ourselves. Choose what we do for work. Choose what we do for for play, choose whom to love, regardless of what others say. So this book is coming, I think, at a starting line. You know, we don't know when this thing is over. We don't, but we are coming through. We are getting vaccinated. We are adapting. And I think this book is a rooting for young people who are already terrified before the pandemic. This is rooting for them. Um, and with a little fire, with a little urgency, a little, yeah go, but I think they've already got a little bit of that impatient urgency because they have been through a pandemic. Absolutely. I want to turn down and talk about this concept of adulting. I just love yeah. it. <laughs> Thank you, millennials. So, listen, I, I appreciate your depth reframing and the way you reconceptualize adulting. Um, and yes, big thanks to millennials for gifting us this term. <laughs> but adulting needed to be adulted in so many ways, right? So I'm thinking in particular about the ways adulting as a notion, a notion whose meaning shifts depending on who and what it's applied to. For example, there's education research out there that examines the extent to which Black youth come of age under the conditions of what people call accelerated childhoods. In other words, Black kids tend not to be seen as kids within the U.S. context. They tend to be seen as adults. So Tamir Rice is one example. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the ways that race, gender, sexual identity, and all other forms of difference actually shape our understandings of adulting. And how did you attend to that in the writing of the book? Thank you. <laughs> See, I knew that being in conversation with you would be important, unique, and special. Those of us who come from struggle, so if we are poor, if we're working class, if we have a family dynamic that is challenging, a parent who is mentally ill or physically ill or incapacitated due to addiction, um, those of us who come up with folks who don't have the financial means to, uh, to support us as well as they might hope, we grow up sooner than others. Um, those of us who are marginalized on the basis of our identity in a family that is middle class, uh, everything is fine, except we are not. We saw a clip of that in the opening video of um, 
a gay man saying, right, my parents were telling me you're, you're problematic. When we are otherized or our family is itself marginalized and not supported within our community, we have to grow up faster. We have to learn to rely on ourselves. We learn that, you know, nobody's there. I got to take care of me. Uh, we get stronger from that struggle. We learn life skills from that struggle. It is a fact. I'm not trying to romanticize it. Um, but it is a truism that, that those childhoods have been stolen. Um, it grows you up quicker. You're going to end up more capable in so many ways than your better off peers by these standards. Um, but at a great cost, you've been robbed of the innocence, the protectiveness um, that so many other children um, are offered. Turns out those children who might have had the very protected childhood are less prepared for adulting in the 21st century. And they are not the sole focus of my book by a long shot, but I do address that a, an overly managed childhood where childhood has extended well past 18, into 19, into 22 and 25, um, that that can leave you lacking in agency. You may not know how to take care of business. You may not know how to deal with the basics around bill paying and keeping track of your belongings and making food and looking after your body and going to therapy appointments and doctor's appointments and taking your meds and, and so on. The basic stuff that we all have to master um, when we're no longer sort of carried by someone else, um, that basic stuff is, is often still handled by parents who have means, by parents who have a staff that they can devote to curating their kids every moment. So there's a fragility in the overcare. There's a fragility that comes sometimes from the affluence that kids who came up on a harder path in life, they don't have the fragility, they have the strength. And so in this book, as I am, I'm not critiquing anybody's childhood. I'm trying to acknowledge everybody has come up in a different way. Nevertheless, we all have to know, hey, I can take care of business as I've defined it. Put more bluntly, our parents will be dead one day. And if only then, I need to be sure I can procure shelter and food and so on for myself. And so it's imperative that we all figure this stuff out. And I've embedded in this book stories, not just of the lessons I've learned. And, and let me say, I should have said this as I was answering this at the outset. I come from privilege. My father was an African-American physician. My mother has a PhD, a white woman. I'm highly educated. My family began, when I came into their life, they were middle class and we became upper middle class. So I did not have that struggling childhood. Um, I say in the book, when I'm interviewing a young man whose parents um, were immigrants from Mexico and father was a landscape uh, landscaper, mother cleaned homes. This is Jamie in my book who works at Common Sense Media in San Francisco now is a grown man with a partner and a child, but he's telling me about his childhood where his father said to him when he was nine, it's time you learned um, not to just work with your head, but work with your hands. I'm sending you back to your grandfather's peanut ranch in Mexico, where you're going to you know, harvest the peanuts and sell them for money with grandfather. And if you earn enough money, you can come back home to California and, and enter the fifth grade. And Jamie learned hard work 
through the teachings of his grandfather in Mexico on the peanut farm and his father here in the U.S. who said, I don't want this experience to soften you. You need to know how to work with your hands, even though I'm putting you through school. And I had to confess to Jamie as I'm interviewing him, and he's one of close to three dozen people in this book. He said, Julie, I'm going to tell you my story. Have you ever worked on a farm? And I confessed that, yes, I had worked for two days on a farm in Wisconsin when I was in high school, detasseling corn, but I couldn't hack it. And I went and became a bus girl at a 24-hour restaurant instead. But he said my two days on the farm were enough such that I could picture what he was seeing in the rows of, of agriculture that he was walking as a child. And I had to confess, in on the pages of the book, Jamie was riding a donkey to learn work ethic. I had a Shetland pony in childhood and and showed him in a in horse shows in Wisconsin. So I come from privilege. And I put my that fact on these pages and the struggles that I have dealt with, yes. But I've got Jamie in there. And I've got Anthony who came up in foster care in Stamford, Connecticut, and was ultimately at Tufts University at a frat party. There's a fight and the police come because there's a fight and they surround Anthony, the one black kid. They surround him, guns drawn on his own campus in an era well before we use the terminology Black Lives Matter. Anthony's in there, as is Kyle, who grew up in Appalachia with a mother addicted to opioids. I'm putting these three, they all happen to be men. They're, half the book is people who are not men. Um, but I happen to pick three examples right now of, who happen to be male. They're in there because the persistence, the insistence, the work ethic, the honing of the self, who am I, how will I be in the face of these circumstances is so powerful. And I want young people who have had it far easier and are feeling malaise and stuckedness. And I don't know if I want to adult. I don't know if I can adult. I want them to be inspired by the stories of folks who have had it much harder. Thank you for that. Wow. Thank you. Uh, And I, I love how the book, and we'll talk about the structure of the book, um, but I love the idea of pairing both your own life narrative, your own your own lens with that of others. But let's talk about your writerly trajectory. Um, what sparked your interest in writing about parenting and adolescent development and Black and biracial identities and so on? Um, I know, for instance, that your work at Stanford, where you were beloved by students who referred to you as Dean Julie, um, was critical, right? And shaping the types of books, the stories you want to tell, the things you wanted to put in the world. But from where do you draw your inspiration? What sparked your interest in telling complex, beautiful human stories in a unique way that you do? Darnell, I was told coming up that I didn't write well. Mm. I you know, I was told the same thing. Were you? Yeah. Do you think they were right? Um, you know, it's funny. I always say I want to, I'm not going to name the teacher, (laughs) (laughs) but the very thing that the seed that was planted in my head as a young person, um, I would come to understand that the very thing that I was told I could not do was actually a gift that I had. Um, and the same year that that teacher told me I couldn't write is the same year I won like the citywide poetry contest where Sonia Sanchez was our mm. guest speaker. <laughs> right. Okay. So, okay. Okay. But wait, so, talk to me about your journey. Okay. So I think a different, right. So you had the talent early on. I didn't, I was not a voracious reader because I have some 
challenges with reading. I'm old enough that I didn't get tested. I didn't get a diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure that I have some learning differences that I've figured out how to support myself around. But long and short of it, I wasn't a big reader as a kid, only read what I had to, listened in class. If I didn't finish the book, I just listened to what everyone else said about the book. That kind of manner of learning still managed to do quite well. Um, was praised for my oral rhetoric, was a theater kid, became a lawyer. I knew I had good ideas. I knew I was praised for my articulation, often in a very stereotypically uh, stereotypical way, right? You're sorry to go... So I knew I could, I knew my ideas and, I, and language were good, but I couldn't craft a sentence that wasn't passive. I stumbled upon the poetry of Lucille Clifton in 2005. We were assigning her poetry collection, Good Woman, to the incoming class at Stanford, along with two other books. We had a program called Three Books. The freshmen got all three. The authors would come, meet with the entire freshman class in a large auditorium, I would have the honor of introducing the event. So I had to read all the books. I wasn't into poetry, couldn't stand poetry, but Miss Clifton is coming to my campus. I need to read this book. And after an hour and a half, I looked up and realized I was immersed in her poetry. And I will tell you that her poems, I'm, I'm uh, biracial and black. My father's black, my mother's white. So I did not have a black mother. And I describe Lucille Clifton as my literary Black mother. That is, through her poems, and I can hear her saying poems, um, I saw Blackness, I saw femaleness, I saw the body, I saw sex, I saw sexuality, I saw childbirth, I saw violent uh, violence perpetrated against Black bodies. And I found myself feeling, if she is possible, if her words are possible, then maybe I am possible. Okay, I'm still climbing out of my self-loathing as a person who's internalized the, the oppression, the microaggressions. Lucille Clifton's poetry motivated me to know myself better through poetry. I began writing poetry. And that was my first volitional writing. I mean, writing that was not for school or work. I began writing some essays about race. I began knowing myself and needing some of the pain that I was experiencing out of myself through writing. And so this deep knowing, and I think it's no accident that I was working on a college campus because I'm helping young adults come to terms with who am I? What do I want out of this life? What if it was just up to me? What would I do? It's hard to be a proponent of that process happening for others and not ingest it and digest it and participate in it oneself. So my growth happened in that space and place on the Stanford campus, rooting for other people to make good choices in their lives, lives, I decided, you know what? Writing is becoming increasingly important to me. I was writing poetry. I was writing song lyrics and um, ultimately decided this concern that I had about helicopter parents robbing young people of agency, which was a deep concern of mine as a dean, I thought I need to write a book about this. I was giving speeches. I was writing in op-eds. And um, Dan Pink said to me one day, the writer and thinker, thought leader Dan Pink, heard me give a speech on helicopter parenting. And he said, do you write? Do you write? I said, well, everything you heard me say was written. He said, no, but do you write? I think you have a book in you. And Dan mentored me. So I went off to get an MFA to develop confidence that I could write a book. And... Um, as I continued to heal myself around the race stuff, the writing came more clearly. I think it was a passive writer in part because I couldn't see myself 
fully as a person of worth and value. So that's, that's the long answer. There's a longer answer, but I think I'll stop there. I love that. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Lucille Clifton. I can listen to you talk about big ideas all night, honestly. Um, But I love, love, love to hear you share a bit about your actual writing process for your turn as a writer. (laughs) Listen, I'm working on this second book now. You want to talk about the, the work that it takes to summon the idea, to go from idea to words on the page, to find voice, to, to send a proposal out that's accepted and then write in the top, like so much, so much. So, was this process similar similar to or different from the process that you use for your other books? And walk us through a day in the life of Julie the writer. What's your process of creating this particular book look like? I can give you funny stories about mine. I'm telling you, like, <laughs> when I was working on my book, I would literally get up and plan a seven to eight hour day as if it was sort of a quote unquote work day, have a lunch. And I would sit there. I went, got a house in Atlanta for three months by myself. And I would sit there at my computer. And I would say, if you, if, if words don't come for four hours, you want to sit there until they come or whatever, or you'll take a walk. But I, I would not like drink during the week. I would only drink on the weekend. I mean, all this stuff. My friends would call me. I looked bananas. They're like, what is going on with you? And I think writing is a beautiful, laborious process. So Ugh. interesting. Just hear your process. What tell us about it? I love being in conversation with writers because nobody else <laughs> really gets it. Um, and we know what a triumph it is when we finally birth that thing. Um, I love hearing about other people's processes. Okay, so uh, I wrote a New York Times bestseller. While I was getting my MFA at California College of the Arts, big shout out to CCA for helping me feel myself as a writer. Um, It was my side hustle was writing that book. That was the helicopter parenting book. It didn't feel like the brave, edgy graduate school thesis. So I did not want it to be my thesis. Um, So my thesis was the memoir, the book on on the arc of innocence to self-loathing to self-love as a black and biracial person who's lived life mostly in white spaces. And so my agent, so my editor is seeing me on Facebook saying, Hey, I'm finishing my thesis. I'm graduating. And she's like, Julie, you got some work coming out. I'd like to see it. So my agent sends my editor the finished, you know, the thesis, real American and the publish, my editor and her colleagues said, great, we'll publish your memoir on race, but we want a sequel to the first book. So we negotiated that the memoir would come first because it was done. It needed to be augmented and edited, but it was a complete work already. The sequel was a concept in their mind. I didn't want to write a sequel. Um, I thought I I just, I was in this race work and I just didn't want to think anyway. So I, I signed a contract. I signed that contract in 2016. Published Real American, two book contract published Real American, then had to figure out what we had agreed to by way of a sequel to How to Raise an Adult. My editor, whom I love, Barbara Jones, said, okay, Julie, so this new, the sequel will be for parents of adult children who are struggling with adulting. I said, hold up, Barbara. The author of How to Raise an Adult is not going to write a book for the parents of adult children, air quotes, because that's further infantilizing these young adults who could be in the Marines, but instead we're calling them adult children. 
No, I'm going to write it for them. Their parents are going to read it. That's great. We want that. But this book has to be showing up for them, not a critique of them, not a pathologizing of them, for them, rooting for them. So I've won that battle then couldn't write it because I thought I'm not an authority on adulting. Who is? Adulting is a phase of life between childhood and death. If you survive childhood, you're adulting. That's it. You're on your own. You fend for yourself. You ask for help when you need it. You make your own way. I'm not an expert. Who is? Finally, I mean, I submitted outlines, um, not a proposal per se, because we'd already got the contract. It was just, here's what the book will look like. Here's what it will contain. Here's some sample language. A 12-page outline was rejected. A three-page outline was rejected. A whole treatment of the book that ran 100 pages was rejected. And that 100-page treatment was all of these stories. I was interviewing people about their adulting journey, and I was shaping that into a book. And they said, Julie, your readers don't want to read, just hear about other people. They want your voice. So finally, I summoned the memory of myself as a dean having office hours with students where my job was to root for them. I said, if I can put that voice on the page in a one-way dialogue with the reader, maybe I will succeed. Turns out to be chapter five of your turn. It's called Stop Pleasing Others. They have no idea who you are. And it's me saying, you've got this inner voice that you've got to listen to, crowd out the noise of other people's expectations and judgment, get better at listening to your own self, crying out for you to pay attention to what this life can be. And once you listen for it, you'll get better at hearing it. Then you have to have the courage to honor it. That's the chapter that is the voice of the book. My editor, Barbara, said, I don't know what you did, but you did it. It's working. Keep going. And that was the summer of 2019. I'm a binge writer. I write just, I want to use a very offensive term I'm not going to use. I have to come up with a better term to mean like everything to the wall, right? I just go. My family knows, don't bother her. She's writing a book. I don't write X hours a day. I avoid it and then write it all for 10 weeks. Okay. So this book took two years. Okay. I'm a binge writer. I took myself off to retreat in Sea Ranch in the northern part of Sonoma County, just south of Mendocino County, rented a place for a week. I rented a place in Santa Cruz woods for three weeks and then the fires came and I got evacuated. So I lost that writing retreat. Um, so this was in fits and starts and, um, and then finally Darnell, when I turned in the cop, the, the, the final document and the copy edit came back and copy edit is a process. The big publishers at least farm out to a freelancer. The copy editor changed my voice, not just grammatically is copy editor is supposed to make grammatic changes. This person altered my voice changed the way I speak about everything. It was offensive after a page and a half. I threw my hands up and I said, I can't do this. And to her credit, my editor said, I 100% agree with you. This is what happens to voices not considered mainstream, not considered, you know, the Queen's English or the standard this and that. This is how people like us can have our voices watered down, neutered, um, dismantled. It felt like an assault and I wouldn't stand for it. And we all went to bat for that not to happen. They threw out that copy edit and, um, we just, uh, we just, we, we jettisoned it, but I think I was able to do that because this was book three and I was already a proven author. Yeah. And, um, but it was offensive. Yep. I, yep. 
yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here shaking my head. I'm like, I know these, I, I think I'm thankful for my editors and copy editors. And, but I'm like you, I, I, I get into a, like this run where I just go. Might take me two years to get the idea <laughs> sharpened and conceptualized. But once I'm in it, I'm in it. Um, your turn is, it's a brilliantly, it's brilliantly stitched work. I like, it, it's insightful analyses, it's cultural criticism, it's some social history, expert recounting and case studies, reflective considerations, life writing. I'm just like, well, and you did it all. What I love about it though, is it, 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 there's levity. And, and I like, that is such a hard balance to accomplish. So talk to me about the book, the, the sort of look, the feel, the style, the mood, organization of the book. That's also like, I'm interested in how you, how you stitched it all together. Thank you for that. I want to write down everything you're saying. because <laughs> You're really getting the book and, and I'm so grateful that you went deep with it. Really appreciate it. Um, I know it's a big book. Uh, it's a long book. Um, one of the things I do is subvert childhood norms. So for a generation that's been told, perfect, great job, buddy. Perfect. You slid down a slide. Perfect. You drew a drawing. Like, whoa, there's chapter three. You're not perfect. You're here to learn and grow. I want that to feel like a bit of a what? You know, because then I know I've got their attention. Okay. Similarly, chapter seven, start talking to strangers. Humans are key to your survival. Why is that in there? Because they've been told, don't talk to strangers. And then they don't know how to ask for what they need from a stranger, behave respectfully to a stranger with a stranger, read body cues of a stranger. Like we need to be teaching our kids how to interact, not to not interact. Um, so those are two examples of trying to subvert childhood norms um, deliberately on the page. Um, humor, I think, is me saying, I don't have all the answers. This is, again, not about perfection. This is a process. It's a mindset Shit will happen. Yep, that's normal, natural. Nothing wrong with you when shit happens. Yep, it's about getting back up, learning what you can, keeping on going. And if I'm going to talk about serious stuff, just as I do with the helicopter parenting keynotes that I've been doing now for close to six years, I'm going to tell it to you straight and I'm going to make you laugh and I'm going to make you cry. And I'm gonna, it's easy to try to have that goal in, a, in an audience setting where you have the benefit of live and vo voice and and cadence and delivery and you can go for your punchline you know the page is just you trying to anticipate how the reader will react so you know i think there are probably some places where i failed but i'm certainly trying um, i'm trying to anticipate when does the reader need for me to go for real like okay you know i'm trying to anticipate where they are looking for reassurance, where they're looking to be pulled where they're looking to you know where they need to be nudged where they need to be related to here I am, 53, trying to relate to people a generation or two behind me, doing my best to lead with vulnerability, humility, curiosity, respect. I'm basically saying, look, I'm this older person. I've done some stuff. I've done some stuff I shouldn't have done. I've learned. I'm trying to turn around on life's path or just turn around in this wilderness because I'm up ahead because I'm older and I've got this warm light. And I'm just shining this warm light so that your options, opportunities, your way is illuminated. It is a little less dark, meaning unfamiliar, scary, you know, because I am here with some light. That's what I've tried to achieve in these pages. And you did. You achieved that. You achieved that. 
Um, I want to remind those that are in that are listening, please get your questions ready. Ask questions. We want to ensure that you're engaged in the conversation as well. You can put those in the comment section. Um, I have one more question before we go to audience Q&A, um, but I want to do some more reading from your book before I ask a question. I love because this. This, was this has part. never happened. This book is so new. No one has ever read it to me before. <laughs> I love this. Because <laughs> um, I particularly love the section on kindness. There are 7 billion of us on the third rock from the sun, and sometimes our days are rough. We have heavy burdens, hurts, needs, and small things that just make us sigh or ask why. When aided in these moments by another human or even an intuitive animal, kindness lifts the actual burden and also lifts our hearts. We think to ourselves, okay, I was treated kindly, and that's a sign that the world is good, and I can keep going on my journey because of this knowledge. And then the magic kicks in, and then the super-duper magic kicks in. Anyone who witnessed that kind exchange, the kind act exchange between us and someone else is more likely to be kind to a third someone else. And the cosmic wonder of it all is that you being kind to someone else can even make you feel better. Being kind to someone else lifts your spirits, pulls you out of the sad state. Kindness is a magic elixir with exponential power. Uh, I can go on. I, I just, this other part I should read too. In chaos theory, it's said that an infinitesimal thing like a butterfly flattening, fluttering its wings can weeks later cause a tornado somewhere else very far away. The butterfly effect also applies to kindness. As I type these words, there's a stranger in Portland, Oregon named Nan who has just sent me another postcard. Their, post, their, postcard, that, their postcards come to my P.O. box, my publicly available, available address, so it doesn't feel keep, creepy. This is the six I've received. The handwriting is a big flowing cursive. They seem to be writing because they care about me. Their second postcard had two flying bumblebees in the front, and on the other side it said, I wish you time in the zone. Writing flows, delight follows, and you, like reading what you wrote, sincerely, Nan. All this from a stranger. Nan's postcards make me feel cared for and make me ask, what was the last, when was the last time I was that kind, this kind of someone? I decided to write Nan back. I found a little card that read, you made my day. And on the inside, I wrote, just want you to know I'm getting your postcards and they make my day. Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate it, Julie. It's not lost on me that Nan's postcard had a drawing of not just busy bees, but of bees beating their wings in flight, butterfly effect. First, Beautiful. Second, talk to us about the story about Nan. And then three, I'm, I know it's a load, it's a lot. Give you three questions at one, well, two. Really want to hear about Nan, but also it's no better time, I think, to talk about kindness than now. Uh, we're living in a moment where practices of love and kindness are understood by some as like underrated, right? Like that's not political. That's not, that's not the beat. Um, whether we exist or engage others in physical or virtual echo chambers, our communities. Say more about the importance of kindness as an attribute and practice of adulting in these times. So Nan and then the importance of kindness as. So Nan uh, is a stranger in Portland and um, Nan has sent me these cards. I wish I, my desk is a mess right now. I <laughs> could probably find one somewhere if I, if I poked around for five minutes, but um Boy, it felt like a gift from my ancestors 
through the handwriting and intentionality of Nan. When a stranger goes out of their way to say a kind thing or do a kind thing, puts a little effort in, had to buy a card, write in it, address it, find a stamp, put it in the mail. It feels astonishing um, just to be in somebody, on somebody's mind and to have them go that, make that relatively small effort um, felt profound. Um, who is this person that they're rooting for me? And of course, I'm not assuming I know Nan's gender. I say they on the page. I'm trying to demonstrate in these pages, we don't make gendered assumptions. And that was an opportunity for me to demonstrate that. Um, as an aside, <laughs> I wanted to say that. Um, it was just such a gift. So kindness. Um, look, we are a social species, Darnell. It isn't about how much money you make. It isn't about the size of your house. At the end of the day, whether we live a long, healthy life is a function of whether we had a handful of relationships we could count on. I cite this research in the book based on the book Friendship by Lydia Denorth, which is a beautiful narration of the science of friendship that primates, including us humans, need one another. We need the grooming. We need the conversation. We need the touch of skin to skin. We need to know we've got someone we could call at 2 a.m. when something terrible has happened. And when we have a decent set of relationships in our life at in our 50s, that's what predicts longevity, not our cholesterol level in our 50s. It's the quality of the love. And kindness is a tiny little speck of love, I think. Um, and... Um, I call it a red carpet that opens doors. This is what I've been telling kids in assemblies for years. Forget about what college you're going to. Are you kind to other humans? Because being able to show up in any circumstance and summon kindness, that is, give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Be gracious. Be patient. Remember that what they're expressing, if it's anger, if it's insecurity, there's pain underneath that. Be compassionate. You know, if you can engage with your fellow humans with kindness, the doors of life will open to you. People will want to give you that job. They will want to give you a second chance. They will want to give you the benefit of the doubt. They will be rooting for you if you are kind. When you think about the people you admire the most, you know, it's not that billionaire asshole. It's, you know, you can be a billionaire, but you better also be kind if you're looking to be admired by people. So um, I do think, I call it one of our superpowers. It's at the back of the book. I call it one of the three things you can summon, like Thor summons his hammer in the Avengers. Like you can summon kindness and claim it and, and be it and give it along with gratitude and mindfulness. Those are the things, no matter what, they can improve the quality of our conversations, of our relationships, of our family life, of our work place existence, our communities, our world, our species. I truly believe it. I think we are ready, frankly, for a level up. Imagine if we all emerge from this pandemic and focus just for a day, maybe a week on everybody is going to be intentionally kind to everybody else, to treat everybody with dignity and kindness as if they are us, as if they are our best friend. I mean, that is the way through around the stereotypes and around the ways in which we are instinctively cruel to people who are not like us. If we can summon the will to treat this person with dignity and kindness, we could level up America. Yes.
Yes, y'all heard that? That was a good word. We have some questions for you. Um, there's loads of questions, so hopefully we can get to as many as possible. And I think we have about 15 minutes, or a little less. But the first it asks, how well, how well can or do you... Ah, I think what's being asked is, how do you integrate these views um, into your relationship with your own kids? Well, I'm great at preaching what other people should do. <laughs> My kids are 21 and 19, and if someone could tell them to watch this talk, that would be awesome. Um, you know, I'm 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 an expert and I'm a, a learner all at once. Uh, my parenting helicopter parenting book. I'm saying don't helicopter parent. At the same time, I discover I'm a helicopter parent. So I try to lead with vulnerability and humility and curiosity. So um, I am trying to teach my kids things. I'm also learning plenty from my kids. They are making their way out into the world. There are some ways in which I have overparented and those chickens are coming home to roost. And I'm working on repatterning with my kids, trying to pull back, trying not to presume they're fragile and needy and need help. Um, so I'm trying to be a good role model and and continue learning and and inviting my kids to give me feedback on uh, the stuff I need feedback on. Love that. Uh, someone says, I'm a tried and true millennial and find that even now in my 30s, I'm dealing with the same stresses I did in my 20s, career growth, student loans, worried I may never own a home, etc. When do you think my generation will catch a break? Mm. I feel for you, millennials. I love you. <laughs> I, think, I do think you are magnificent as a generation. Uh, and it has been rough. You have been coming up in hard times in a macroeconomic sense, student loans, as you mentioned, cost of living in many cities, outpacing uh, wages and salaries. Um, catch a break, I would say, okay, so by whose measure? Um, what standards are you trying to reach? Are they your own standards? What's most important is that you're, they're your own. If you are dissatisfied with the amount of money you're making vis-a-vis -vis what it costs to live where you live, I'm going to say something radical, but I mean it. Consider getting together with a few friends and picking a city. There are plenty of cities in America that are affordable, that have jobs, that have the kind of quality of life somebody your age wants. Um, the coasts are right now quite inhospitable in terms of cost of living. Maybe you want to take a deep breath, look around, gather a few people. I'm not saying go by yourself unless that's your thing, but see if you can't, just as people have been in their own pods during the pandemic, a bunch of young people, like we're going to live together because we need each other. You know, it might be time for a big shift, you know, and I encourage you, whatever's coming up for you, as I say this, just be curious what's coming up for me. Why am I saying no, Julie? You know, why is a piece of me going like, yeah, maybe that's, that's the thing. If there's something beckoning you that has always felt like, you know, I really want to give this a try, but all this other stuff is in the way. I very much believe in, in jumping and in, in jumping, telling your network of family and friends, this is what I'm doing. I'd like your support. Um, and having a little faith um, that when you jump um, and unfurl your wings, that the air will be there and, and catch you and you will fly. I know that I've given a very practical move, a very philosophical jump. Um, but what I'm trying to do is jostle you from whatever thinking is making you in your body and your articulation feel stuck. Okay, I have a whole chapter called Get Out of Neutral on getting unstuck. And I think it might be the stories in there about how people got unstuck um, might be really beneficial to you. Awesome. Next question. Are you both as optimistic and excited about Gen Z as many of us are? <laughs> I mean, I can just say that 
I share both an optimism, a, a cautious optimism. Um, one of the things I'm excited about is the Gen Z has the benefit of um, windows through which they can see so many different lived experiences in the world. And because of that, come to senses of, of identity and difference in, in just such profound ways. I'm just like, <laughs> I wish I was, thir- you know, like 13 year olds. It's like, no, that's not how I identify. This is, I don't even use those, like, those terms. They don't work for me anymore. Um, and they have the benefit of, of like this cross pollination of ideas. And also though, like I lament the ways that new media technologies might in some ways inhibit that human touch point. You know, like I don't. I, I was telling my um, family, like when I was a kid, I used to play on the street. I would be outside until my family called me in, like playing with other kids. My niece, my nephews are at like four and three, and they're stuck on their phones and their computer, you know, on the computers and their iPads. I'm like, I want you to be to see the world, to be out in the world. So that's some of my my cautious optimism. But yes, I'm optimistic, and also I, I realize the world that Gen Zs are living through is structured with just different elements that that I think are additive, but in some ways also sometimes could restricting. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are Darnell just said something brilliant and I don't have um, anything <laughs> really different to say, but Darnell just said it better than I could have. So ditto. Um, what guidance do you have for young people to cope with the climate crisis, considering as a prevalent fear that it will neg- negatively impact our futures? The equivalent I have for this is uh, the Cold War. I was born in 1967. I'm Gen X. And the threat of nuclear war with the Soviet Union, as it was known at the time, as as Russia and its uh, the countries that it had taken over were known as the time, um, that was real. And uh, we were pretty clear that at any moment, either our president or theirs could push a button and the world would be over. And um, it has a similar existential threat uh, quality to it as climate change. Um, although of course, entirely human pushing, pushing a button to launch a nuclear missile is a very directly human thing. Climate change is this systemically anthropologically historical set of human decisions that are a whole lot harder to sort of correct. Um, so I think what I would say is Humans have often dealt with hard things. This is a very, very hard thing. We are brighter than we've ever been. We have better technology than we ever have. We are more globally connected in terms of sharing ideas across a diverse set of thinkers than ever. So I'm pretty sure we can do this. And um, millennials and Gen Z have the imperative of, oh, hey, I'm supposed to live for 100 years. I'd like to have a world to inhabit. So there's going to, the complacency and the political BS around this is going to fall away if we continue to elect people who not just believe, right, who know that climate change is real. So if this is about voting. This is about register to vote. This is about be politically active yourself. This is about lean on corporations to do the right thing. I mean, the clock is very much ticking and nobody gets that better than the younger generations. But the older generations are, of course, comp- you know, to to blame for this. So we need to get on board with, with young thinkers. And, um, and this is where I think dovetailing with the last question, younger millennials and, and older Gen Zs um, are incredible leaders and incredible thinkers have a clarity that is breathtaking and they need to learn a few things. Yes, of course, all young people do, but let's, I think we're out of this sort of tra- traditional hierarchical, 
you you don't speak up until you're this age. No, no, no. It's time for the uh, those of us who are older, who have raised these folks or who are the grandparents to these folks to say, wow, let's empower you to get your good ideas out in the world because time is a ticking. Yes. We have time, I think, for two more questions. Um, all right, one or two. How do you think young people can balance their desire to pursue fulfilling careers and ensure financial stability? Yeah, financial stability is a really um, fluid, subjective term. So I believe, I mean, research shows that humans need to, in the United States need to have a salary of about $75,000 to take care of business. And beyond that, happiness does not amplify with more money. So if somebody is below that threshold and they get a raise and they get a raise, they get happier and happier until they get to that $75,000. And then beyond that, their happiness doesn't increase. That's what I'm trying to say. So um, it's about, are our bills getting paid? Are we living in a place where we can afford to live? I sort of answered this question slightly before. I am a firm believer. I have been a corporate lawyer. I have been a university dean. Now I'm an author and speaker. When I went from corporate law to academia, I took a huge pay cut, but got a huge bonus in terms of the intrinsic sense of meaning that I derived from my work, the pleasure of working with young people. Okay. Sometimes they got to pay you all the bucks because the work itself is not inherently meaningful to you and more power to you. If you're in a high paid career that you also love, I know you can feel like a drone in your own life. If you're good at it, but you don't love it. You just feel like, when is my life going to start? I'm good at this, but whose life is this? If you just love it, but you're not good at it and you can't really get better, too much better at it with effort, it should be your hobby. It's not going to be your career. Okay. You've got to be good at it and love it. That's the sweet spot. And when you're in that place, the money will work itself out. I am 100% confident believing in that. Yes. Yes. There are challenges. Yes. I hear that. And I still stand by that. When you do work, you're good at, and you love life sings. Yes. I always say, do the work that feeds your stomach and your soul. Um, higher education is a major way to facilitate upward mobility, but it feels like elite universities are overly emphasized as opposed to state schools or smaller institutions, wherever, whenever we talk about college, how can we change our society's perception of college? So students from less affluent backgrounds feel like a bachelor's degree can be within reach. 100% agree with you. I'm a huge fan of state schools, small colleges nobody has heard of, community college. I'm even occasionally a fan of the elite private places everybody's so hell-bent on getting their kid into. A great education is to be had at so many places. Um, get the book, um, The Price You Pay for College by Ron Lieber. It was just out a couple months ago. He's a New York Times money columnist, and he debated he really explains how college gets paid for and how there is all kinds of aid available. If you are low income, if you're not sure, you think I could never afford a private place. Not, I'm not saying you should want to go there, but if you do want to go there, it may turn out to be more affordable than your state school. So look into the finances, look into the scholarships, be excited about starting off at community college as a, as a springboard to four year, um, Absolutely. I embrace all of those options and frankly think um, that community college as a springboard to the four-year is a really smart, affordable way to get that four-year degree uh, with a much more affordable first two years. 
Perfect. So it's a tradition at Inform to ask all of our speakers a following question. You ready for this? Let's take a deep breath first. Okay. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Roll over in bed tomorrow morning if you have a partner. Roll over in bed. And before your partner gets out of bed, lean your forehead against their skin and say to them, what can I do to make today easier for you? It's an act of kindness. It is a profound act of kindness. It is so simple. And um, it'll change your partners. It'll rock your partner's world. You can do this with friends. Okay, I said partner, but it'll Maybe you're not in bed with somebody. If you're just in friendship with somebody, in the workplace with somebody, ask one person that question tomorrow. See how they light up. See how their soul feels seen. Hopefully they won't say, fix my roof. You know? I'm writing um, that down. Yeah. And you have the right to be asked it in return. And if the person doesn't, within a day or two, ask it in return, you need to examine what's going on in that relationship. What can I do to make your day lighter? Yes. I'm quoting Dan Lithcott Hames, my life partner of 33 years, who's the best thing that ever happened to me. I do write about him in this book. Everyone falls in love with Dan when they read my books. He is amazing. And he did do that in April of last year when the pandemic was new and I was stressed out of my mind on a Saturday morning because my work was all falling off a cliff because you couldn't speak for a living anymore. He rolled over in bed and pressed his forehead against my back and said, how can I make today easier for you, baby? I love that. Our thanks to you, um, to Julie Lithcott Haynes, author of, you all need to go get this book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. We encourage you to pick up your copy of Julie's new book. Thank you, because I'm mine. It got blurred this on my screen. Blurry. <laughs> but we encourage you to pick up your copy of Julie's new book through your preferred bookseller. Special thanks goes out to Marcus Bookstore. Big shout out to Marcus Bookstore in Oakland. They're always supportive for being our bookstore partner for tonight's program. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Darnell Moore. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.